Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and I'd like to introduce Robert Burleson, our communications manager. Hello, everyone, and I'd like to introduce Carolus Hanna, who's from the Minneapolis area, who's a uh, survivor of aplastic anemia. And thank you for joining us, Carolus. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, let's get started. First, we'd just like to know a little bit about you, uh, really in the, the personal regard, what your life was like before you received a diagnosis and just what you were doing before this happened. My life prior to diagnosis, uh, so I was diagnosed uh, during my pharmacy school uh, curriculum. Uh, prior to that, um, I was just living your average life, normal, um, no health issues, uh, no medications, nothing at all. I was just, you know, your average teenage, early 20s, uh, you know, male, just going to college, working full time. Um, I was away from home, so, you know, it was uh, not having family around, but pretty much just your average person um, from day to day. So this happened in your uh, school days, so to speak. Could you Quickly tell us what age you were when you were diagnosed and your age now. Yes, absolutely. So I was diagnosed, I was 22 years old. So it was uh, wow. in 2015. <laughs> uh, so yeah, 21, 22 years old. Uh, it was during pharmacy school, um, right before uh, before my last year of pharmacy school. Mm-hmm. And can you just tell us what you experienced, how you felt then you decided, as we often see, you know, they go to a primary care doctor and then often referred on to a specialist. But just what the process was and how long it took from when you first started looking into this to receive a diagnosis. Oh, absolutely. So, so you know, it was I was, as you mentioned, in that somewhat of a unique situation in the fact that I was in pharmacy school, I was in healthcare, so. Early detection was something that, you know, I, I kind of was familiar with. You know, I began experiencing abnormal bruising. So I would, you know, wake up or just be about my day. And then at the end of the day, just have this abnormal bruising on my legs. Um, whereas generally, you know, it would not appear. And this wasn't a normal small bruise. It would just be, they would be large, um, dark bruises. Can't even give a, a good example, to be honest with you. And then Significant bruises, yes. Yes, yes. And then also like petechiae spots. So mm-hmm. you would see just, I would just be spotted. So I was, I was somewhat, you know, I, I asked myself, okay, is this occurring because I am in school, working full time, stress, everything? Uh, do I need to just kind of calm back down and just relax a little bit? Um, so I began to try and eat a little healthier, eat more greens, uh, work a little less, um, you know, try to uh, you know, prioritize my time a little bit better to avoid a little uh, some of that stress. And then, you know, it was it was at the end of third year of pharmacy and before fourth year. So I, I had my exams right around the corner. So I didn't want to, you know, I, I was tight on time. And then I figured, though, you know, after a week or two, I will have uh, about a couple of weeks off and I could at that point uh, go see my primary care and really begin a, a workup in case this is something um, more serious than what I'm thinking. Now, of course, you've mentioned what we were going to bring up, that having a professional connection or affiliation with hematology, oncology, in pharmacology, did this help you in any way or did it 
more like or possibly complicate things? So in, in all honesty, you know, when you look at students that matriculate through pharmacy school, the, the focus in pharmacy school is not so heavy on hematology oncology. I mean, we generally receive one or two years of education. Mm-hmm. And then um, those who want to specialize in the field will go on to do residencies that help you specialize. So my knowledge in hematology oncology was somewhat limited. Um, but obviously, there, there's a lot that you can extrapolate in how you know a patient presents, you can tell when something is wrong. And I would say it was kind of a mix. It was a good thing because during my treatment, I understood what was going on. I understood the treatments I was receiving. Um, so having that background, having that understanding helped, um, you know, and it allowed me to do a little research, see how patients are doing, see what patients are saying. Not that aplastic anemia and MDS are the most common. So you're not finding tons of forums and tons of patient reports. Um, but that was helpful. But also on the other end, you, you, you know, you have an understanding of the potential complications, the potential side effects, and, and you begin to worry, is this gonna, you know, am I going to have long-term effects down the line when I, you know, when I'm several years older, when I want to have kids, when I want to get married? Um, so those were all, it, it was, I would say worked both ways. Okay. Thank you. Um, and just touching back to something I said a moment ago from when you, first went to a primary care doctor and perhaps were referred on um, to a specialist or some other scenario. How long was it from your first visit to the primary care to when you received your diagnosis? That's a very good question. So my first encounter with a primary care was the first week of May of 2000, and I may have mentioned in the beginning 2014, but I was yeah. diagnosed in 2013. Um, I graduated 2014, sorry. Um, so my first encounter with my primary care was first week of May of 2013. Mm-hmm. It was, I remember it, it was a Wednesday. Um, and then when I saw him at first, he stated, uh, you know, you look like you have anemia. Uh, we'll just check, you know, your CBCs. We'll look at some blood counts. You may just need some iron. Um, he calls me back three hours later, uh, tells me that I need to go to the emergency room um, and that I pretty much all my counts are in the toilet. You know, I, I didn't have any platelets. I didn't have any white blood cells. I didn't have any uh, red blood cells. So, you know, it was, it was kind of a scary phone call. You know, what is going on? So we go to the emergency room. We're there all night. They run additional tests and don't find anything because aplastic anemia is often a disease of exclusion. Um, so no signs of leukemia, no blasts, nothing uh, you know there in the blood that can indicate anything specific. Um, they did say that the next morning they would have to do a bone marrow biopsy. So the next morning, it was Thursday morning, they did a bone marrow biopsy, and you know prelim results said you know hypocellular marrow, so not that much stem cells in the bone marrow, and. At that point, they said, we need to talk to a specialist, do further analysis. So I then was, but I saw a specialist. I saw a hematologist within the hospital setting, but he wasn't, he he was just a one time. And that was the last time I saw that doctor. But I was, I then was transferred to the transplant team because obviously in aplastic anemia for young patients, the standard of care, if a donor is available is to transplant them. Um, I was then transferred to a specialist and I would say I saw that specialist at the end of the second week in May or mid of the third week of May. Um, and then after, you know, everything, we we came up with a plan, found that I had a donor. 
uh, treatment was June 19th. So that was what I consider my day zero. So we began treatment about five days prior, uh, on day minus five, when you get all the induction. Oh, goodness. So it happened oh, yeah. really quickly. That's so fast. Oh, yeah. No, fortunately, you know, obviously what we see in patients, in, in my case, I had a younger sibling. And we were a perfect match. So that definitely expedited treatment. Oh, clearly. Uh, but obviously in those patients that they do not have a sibling or the sibling does not match or is not a, you know, eligible to be a donor, then at that point, yeah, I mean, you, you have to start patients on some treatments and they will, um, you know, it could take up months to find a potential donor. Now, what happened and since your diagnosis came so quickly and you perhaps we're on some supportive care, but really just went right to transplant. Uh, what I was going to ask you was just a pretty short window of time here, but right after you were first diagnosed, were there any other challenges or new experiences in addition just to what you'd observed as so, symptoms? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, I think for me, there were two major challenges. One being um, I only had a week off from school. So one big concern was, you know, my doctor asked me, we need 100 days for you because I, I went to school in Florida and was being treated in Tennessee. My doctor said, we need 100 days from you to be able to be local. And so so my, my first concern was, am I going to be able to graduate on time? Because I was, you know, I was graduating within a year. Um, so fortunately, though, I was able to communicate with my dean, maneuver my um, curriculum to some extent where uh, as long as everything stayed on course and there were no unforeseen uh, outcomes from transplant or any unforeseen um, complications, then I would aim to get back to Florida to finish my pharmacy school curriculum without any delays. Otherwise, we would have had to add potentially another semester. So that was one major concern. The second thing was, obviously, being a young patient, you worry about infertility. So, you know, you, you have your whole life ahead of you. Um, so the, the question became, um, you know, what about my future wife who at the time was not in the picture at all? And so then you, you start, you know, so obviously there is, you know, sperm banking for males and, and, um, so that, you know, that was the option that those were the two biggest things. Okay. Then, well, that, uh, oftentimes we speak with, um, patients who have a much longer period of time, but between diagnosis and treatment. And of course. so you, um, even during this, you've mentioned some challenges in the academic arena, but it sounds like things happen so quickly. Was there ever even any time to get discouraged or frightened or anything close to that? I think in my, you know, from how I was raised and and, and just kind of my knowledge from being in the healthcare field and also when you look at aplastic anemia, my mindset going into all of it was – I was one of those patients where, so you look at aplastic anemia, 85% of cases are idiopathic. So we don't know why they happen. It's not a mutation that's known. It's not family risk. And obviously then the, the, the portion of patients that we do know the known causes is generally viruses, drug induced, et cetera, et cetera. And in my case, as I said, you know, I was living a healthy life, just a normal life with, with nothing that caused the complication. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's really what helped me throughout the process. In, in my head, I said, there was nothing that I did that caused this. And at the same time, there was nothing I could have done that could have prevented this. So it's, it's, it's something that I was put in, you know, let's, let's try to be as positive as we can. 
And, you know, potentially I am going to be gaining a great experience from being a patient. When I am out and practicing, this is a great experience because you can, you know, understand how patients feel and you've been in their shoes. Or, you know, this just could be the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, there was really nothing that, you know, but again, it was really that just that mindset of I couldn't have done anything to prevent this. That's that's pretty amazing. It sounds like you were really holding your things together, but I'm wondering about your family. Did you have any family members freaking out on you or or really very, very concerned? You know, my mom, my mother and father, they, they're both, and my whole family lives in Nashville, and that's ultimately why I was treated in Tennessee, um, just to be closer to family. And I think, you know, so my mother is a breast cancer survivor, and, and I was in the hospital during transplant, so from day minus five through transplant, through engraftment, I was in the hospital for 23 days, and my mother spent the night with me in the hospital every single day. So, I mean, as you can imagine, you could just tell. I mean, my parents did their best to stay calm, to, to and, and they're both physicians, so they both also have that understanding of what's going on, um, which also, I think, helped in the process. And um, But you can tell. I mean, they were very concerned. You know, she did not leave the hospital room. She may have left once or twice during the day while my dad was there to go get a couple of things from the house. But other than that, she was she was always there. Okay. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Now, being part, again, associated in the field, did that affect how you related or interacted with medical professionals who were on your treatment team? I, I would say yes. Obviously, someone who's in healthcare, and at this time, you know, I, I had matriculated through several years of pharmacy. I had already had three years under my belt of pharmacy school, and so I, I did have a good you know, understanding of, of all the pharmacology and the drugs that we're going to be using and, and the supportive cares needed and understanding my labs. So, at, you know, I, I oftentimes just, I think, you know, ask them directed questions, um, just, you know, oh, so last night, you know, we may have had this complication. Are we concerned or uh, what should I watch out for? Is there anything other than this, this and this? Um, so I think that, you know, just having that understanding did help the communication because I do know in, in several cases, there's often barriers between the patient and the provider, whether it's the patient not able to understand what the provider is meaning, uh, the provider is not able to simplify the message they're trying to communicate to the patient. Um, so I think on my end, it was, it was a positive, uh, but I can definitely see, we, we often see barriers in, in what we do. Thank you. And as far as just going back to the nuts and bolts of the transplant, you said everything went well, found a donor quickly, the, the uh, pre-transplant preparation, the experience, and then subsequent engraftment. So that all went smoothly. There were no um, complications. Yep, yep. So for the most part, you know, everything went went really, really well. Um, nothing, you know, no, com- no major complications during the hospital stay. Uh, you know, at, on the day of transplant, you know, as many of us know, when you look at the transplant process, you often have a have a care team and a nurse right next to you, and they're, and they're just pushing those stem cells. They're pushing those stem cells because, you know, they're not given via, the, you know, via the IV pumps because you don't want to damage the stem cells. But they were, you know, it was about 1.1 liters of cells that they were trying to get in me as, as quick as possible. Um, so one of the things I do remember is, you know, 
through maybe halfway through the infusion or through that process, I did develop a significant headache. Um, I ultimately think it was just due to, to fluid overload or just too much fluid. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was, it was the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. Um, so we, you know, they were concerned, but I said, you know what, we need to finish. I'll just keep going through this. Uh, I had everybody in the room just kind of quiet down, turn off the lights, um, just get rid of all those extra factors that could potentially um, exacerbate the, the, the headache. And immediately after they finished the uh, infusion, they sent me to CT. They were concerned, oh, maybe there was a brain bleed. There was something because, I mean, you're, you're still, you know, you don't have any platelets, so you could spontaneously bleed. Um, and not to mention you just received um, induction chemotherapy. So you're pretty much ablated. Uh, so we, uh, you know, thankfully there was nothing. So they just thought that, you know, we, we, we uh, thought that it was due to the fluid overload and uh, we, and my blood pressure was a little up as well, so they gave me some medications to lower my blood pressure. But other than that, you know, throughout the process, it's been great. Um, now, you know, we've over the last years, we've been slowly tapering the immunosuppressant therapies that we see in the transplant setting. Um, my docs are very, very conservative. They don't want any signs of graft versus host. So, um, yeah, they've just been very conservative and, and, uh, we're almost there, you know, we're almost, I'm even to today, I still take medications, but, uh, very, very low doses of immunosuppressants, uh, and just to kind of make sure that things stay on track. I did one, one, one funny thing to mention is that I did become a little bit more sensitive. My mouth became more sensitive to spicy foods, um, which is a sign of uh, very, very minor, minor or minimal GVHD, um, and it hasn't gone away. Um, but you know, thankfully, I am not into too much spicy foods, so it's not. It, it didn't take too much of any quality of life or anything like that. There, there you go. Yep. Um, I had I had a question because you're not. You had treatment in Nashville, then yep. you went to. Back to school in Florida, and now uh, you're living in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. So, how has it have, has it been difficult for you to get um, physicians who are hemonc specialists wherever you've moved? Has, was it difficult to make the transfer from after you're going through um, your transplant back to school to find somebody there who could who could maintain you? And then going, you know, after 100 days and then going back to and then after you got your wonderful position in Minneapolis, um, has it been difficult for you to find uh, new doctors to take you along in, the, in each subsequent step? So b believe it or not, um, in my case, I've actually chosen to stay with the with my primary care team that I've been with. Uh, all the way through school. I think the most difficult time for me in, in coordinating the care was when I was finishing up school. So when I went back down to Florida to finish up my curriculum, I was so close out of transplant that they still wanted to see me back on a, for, you know, initially on a weekly basis, then every other week, then monthly. So I was frequently coordinating flights back and forth, back and forth between Florida and, uh, and Nashville. Um, and that was the most... Uh, I guess that, that was the most difficult time because of all the all the traveling. Well, and I know in many cases for many patients that's not feasible. But for me, you know, I figured things have gone so well thus far. Let's stick with the team that I know, um, that knows me, that has been through my entire care and has overseen all my care. Uh, and let's just – why change something if you know it works? 
Um, in addition to that, my family, they, they reside in Nashville. So it was, it would allow me to also see my family from time to time. Uh, and then, you know, after school, things continue to remain, you know, positive, things continue to do well. So one year of my residency, I lived in Nashville. So that was very easy. So that was after school. So my second year after transplant, I was in Nashville for one year. So it made it easier. But then I also lived out in Idaho for a year um, to to do my specialty residency. So again, that required frequent um, travels. But at that time, you know, after I was already out two, three, four years out of transplant, they were only seeing me once every six months. So it uh, it wasn't as much travel uh, that I had to coordinate. And then now where I am, um, I still go down to Nashville, but it's only once a year. So I'm seeing my providers uh, in the summertime. I just go down, get to see my family, uh, just make a trip out of it. And uh, But I still do labs every six months. So what I typically coordinate with my providers is they'll send me lab orders. I'll get them drawn here in Minneapolis, and they'll be faxed to my doctor with results just to make sure that things that, you know, there isn't anything um, that comes up. Uh, so it's been, you know, not, not you know, there are phenomenal hemonc, hematologists, oncologists that I work with, um, you know, here in Minnesota. It's just for me, I never changed care just because I've had that positive relationship with the providers that have were involved in my care from the beginning. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. So you've turned in to us a, a really great coordinator of care, yeah. just, just for yourself, but you have this as you now have this as a potential avocation too. Coordination yes. of care is important. Yes. Yes. Congratulations. Absolutely. I'd like to ask <laughs> you, um, just to shift, uh, the scene a little bit. How, when, when and how and when did you discover AAMDSIF? So for me, um, I heard of AAMDS. It just kind of it, it was in that Googling process mm-hmm. or that Googling stage. Getting online during, and searching. Pre- yeah. So I mean, you know, I, I would, like as I said, I was in the hospital for twenty three days. You, you it, it gets boring. You know, I watched during those twenty three days. I watched all of Lost. So and if you <laughs> if any of you guys have seen Lost. Yes. It's 120 episodes, so you it, it's you have a quite a bit of time. So I was doing a lot of googling, a lot of research, and and obviously, you know, nowadays there's foundations for everything. Um, so AAMDS was definitely um, was something that uh, stood out to me, and I felt you know at the time I didn't do too much involvement. I was trying to finish everything, get everything in line, but then after you know I was out, I I, I remembered, I remember, I remember this organization that I looked back at and. And was able to find resources through their website and kind of relate to this patient population that um, you know that I'm a part of. And for me, that at that point, I kind of I began reaching out to, to several members. I found some email addresses on the website. Say, hey, you know, I am a survivor. I also come with a unique situation in the fact that I'm a healthcare provider. Not only that, I am also an oncology pharmacist. So I practice in this setting. I see these patients. Is there anything that I can? become involved in with the organization to give back. You know, I've, I've had such a, you know, great experience from it. I can speak to patients. I can educate patients. I can do whatever is needed to, because it's, they're both rare diseases. And I think as a team, we all need to come together in order to provide, you know, the best patient care that we can. So that's where PACT came in. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you reached out or a, a connection was made and you joined the committee. Patient Advisory Council on Clinical Trials. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. What what did you do, especially with your unique unique background, as part of 
impact? Uh, what what were you involved in? Outside of AMDS, I also work a lot with PCORI. And actually, AAMDSIF and the PAC committee introduced me to PCORI. It kind of helps oversee and fund PAC. So PCORI is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. So they're kind of like the governing, they're you know, the head of, of all of this. And I am... I'm a very big advocate for for patient-centeredness, especially in these rare diseases where patients will not find a lot of resources that will help them go through um, treatment and provide them with information, provide them with support. Um, There's, unfortunately, in these rare diseases, we obviously see their recruitment in clinical trials is low because the disease is rare to begin with. Funding for clinical trials is is low, again, because it's hard to find patients. Um, And then those patients that are a small group when they are introduced with a clinical trial, it's already rare enough. They don't want to be the experiment. There's not, this isn't a robust phase three, 1000 patient trial, multi-center across the entire globe. They, they tend to be very smaller, you know, much, much smaller trials. So I think the PACT was a way, PACT and PCORI, they were all ways that we could educate patients of the value of being involved in clinical trials to to be able to really give us feedback you know to, that's that's really the, the most important thing a lot of researchers a lot of these md phds they, they they're brilliant brilliant people and they can design clinical trials that are going to improve care and will set new standards of care but there is a gap in relating to patients and a lot of times those barriers and recruitment and, and, and that lead to those barriers um, are due to the fact that they're simple. They might not be treatment related. They might not be disease related, but they're as simple as I don't understand what this trial is talking about. The verbiage is beyond my reading level or my, my comprehension. Or I live in, you know, middle of nowhere, North or South Dakota. I don't have access to easy transportation. How can, are you guys going to provide me with funding and means of transportation? Or if I travel to the larger cities with academic centers, um, you know, such as Minneapolis, which is right nearby, are you guys going to provide me funding and housing? So all these barriers arise and sometimes they're overlooked because researchers are so focused on the research aspect and then they come to wonder, could I have designed a better trial, slightly more patient-centered, provided the same exact treatment, but because of that patient-centeredness, I was able to increase enrollment. Thus, I have a stronger study. Thus, I can have, you know, potentially uh, give more power to my study and my outcomes. So as you've explained, uh, some of these, in addition to understanding the, the trial design, some of just the nuts and bolts issues of participating create a barrier. Absolutely. Okay. And then I imagine you got a certain amount of personal, or I would hope personal and professional satisfaction out of being part of the PACT committee. Absolutely. So, so I mean, personal satisfaction is I, I was able to know. So part of the PACT training is we, we all go to a, it's like a one or two day event where we were, uh, you know, educated about clinical trials. For me, it wasn't it wasn't so new because again, you know, statistics and biostatistics are all part of pharmacy curriculum. So it wasn't um, anything robust, but it is definitely from a patient who is not a healthcare provider, it is very valuable material. And the way that AAMDSIF and and um, the PACT committee 
was able to make it patient friendly, I, I found very, very positive. I mean, they're able to explain exactly what a trial means. What, what are the different phases? What are the control arms? What is a, what does it mean to have a good powered study versus not? Um, and what, why is it so important to have patient enrollment and patient feedback and how to improve clinical trials? So all those were for me, um, you know, for me, the, the, the personal benefit was really going there, meeting patients in my shoes, meeting people and, 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 and colleagues that want to give back, want to optimize care for patients. So being part of that group that wants to improve care and, and, and support patients uh, was really rewarding. And then also on the other end, and from a professional perspective, you know, nothing is better than having a robust clinical trial that I can utilize as a reference to support a specific treatment regimen or make a specific recommendation. So knowing that there is this organization, that there is this committee that is working on improving clinical trials and these rare diseases such as aplastic anemia and MDS help me as a professional, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, we're still early in our stages and we, you know, but it's, it, 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 I was happy as a professional to see that there are organizations focusing on improving these trials because they're able to, they've identified that unmet need because um, it's, it's quite large. Well, thank you. You've been a, that's been an excellent summation of your uh, participation in PACT and, and how you feel about it. Um, so we've really spanned everything from when it began to treatment and, you know, post-treatment and your affiliation with us. We've heard a whole lot about your story today. And I'd like to ask you, as we're drawing to a close, um, unless Tricia has something she'd like to add, I'd like to ask you, do you have one thought that you'd like to share with other aplastic anemia, bone marrow failure patients? Some of these I'm sure you've touched on, but any observations from your professional association with the field? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think I really think the way the perspective of the patient and how they go about their treatment will really help in in the entire process. There are, you know, from day to day we do see difficult situations and we do hear difficult news. But I think, you know, for for in in what we do in hematology oncology and in bone marrow failure and aplastic anemia. No one wakes up and says, I, I want to, to cause myself, give myself a cancer or give myself a, a blood cancer or a bone marrow failure disease. And oftentimes these situations just come up from, you know, idiopathic. We don't know why. They just come up from something that is not within your control um, most of the time. So I think just having, doing your best to have a positive outcome or a positive perspective in going in um, will really help patients. Um, as they matriculate through the phases of care. Um, it's, I, I do think that the general feeling of well-being and having a strong support network really do have or tend to have positive um, effects on outcomes. In addition to that, I, I would like to tell patients and, and colleagues and, 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 and fellows, um, you don't be afraid to ask questions or do the research. You know, Oftentimes, as, as I mentioned, there are those barriers between the provider and the patient, whether it's communication or whether it's, you know, ultimately, you know, this whole, when you think about it, this whole, you know, the, the thing we were talking about with clinical trials, that's, that again is a communication barrier. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And if you don't understand, ask the same question again 
ask for someone else that can explain it better, uh, for a nurse, for a, for a pharmacist, for a physician. There are numerous members of the multidisciplinary teams that can have different perspectives and different understandings and can communicate to the patient differently. So don't let the fact that there, there's a barrier in understanding stop you from asking those questions. It is not, you're simply, for many patients are not healthcare professionals. It is not expected of them to understand the ins and outs of their treatment or the clinical trial they're going to be a part of. And thus that warrants asking questions. Then I think, you know, I think overall, um, I think those two things will really help uh, patients as they matriculate through. Well, thanks for making those cogent points. And again, Carolus, for sharing your journey and your uh, detailed insight with us today. And Absolutely. over to you, Tr- Tricia. Well, thank you, Carolos. It's been amazing to have you with us today. Thank you for uh, sharing your journey and your insight. And and you're ma- please know you're making an impact with sharing uh, your story with uh, all the patients that will be listening to this. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity. And um you know, I, I really hope that we can positively impact all our patients. And thank you, Bob, for um, running the show today. Thank you, listeners, for being here. As a reminder, the AAMDSIF helpline is here for you at 800-747-2820, option 2, or email help at aamds.org, where you can be connected with peer-to-peer support network and other support groups. To connect with your peers online, you can join the confidential chat at marrowforums.org, which you can also find through our website, aamds.org. We'll see you next time. So long.